I'm both the us and the them, right? So I was raised in this conservative Christian tradition to believe that I was so fortunate to have been born into a Christian family in the United States. You know, my family had not come from China to the United States. I might have been in, quote unquote, heathen China growing up as a heathen. Childhood me could be a primary source for historian me. And actually, I could still be a primary source for myself. These ideas are ongoing. They continue to inform the ways that Americans think about the world and think about themselves. And I'm part of that story. You won't hear the word heathen very often today, and Christians originally used the term to describe unbelievers, people who clung to the old gods out in the wilderness. But Christians also thought they could detect heathen unbelief by looking at people's bodies, by the color of their skin or the shape of their landscapes. Race and religion became intertwined. Over time, people became less comfortable using the term heathen. It sounded harsh and judgmental and xenophobic. But even though the word itself has been mostly erased from white Christian vocabulary, the troubling ideas behind it have persisted and even spread beyond religion. Historian Catherine Jin Lum outlines the story in her book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. And she joins us to talk about it in this episode of Fireside with Blair Hodges. Catherine Jin Lum, welcome to Fireside with Blair Hodges. I'm really glad to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to meet you as well. And we're talking about your new book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. And I actually want to begin with a note on terms. This is a page at the beginning of your book. And it says that you chose not to put words like heathen and pagan in quotation marks for the most part. And it's a little disclaimer here and it seems simple enough, but I think it actually says a lot about the history that you're about to tell because you're going to use those terms a lot throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And it's a history of how people have used heathen as an identity label. So let's talk about that note on terms and the power of punctuation. (laughs) What does it mean to not put it in quotation marks? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. Nobody has asked me that so far, actually. You know, I started off when I was writing this book putting heathen and pagan in quotes because these are obviously terms that nowadays people see as problematic, right? They're they're very problematic terms, unless you're using them in the context of neo-paganism or neo-humanism, for instance. So I was doing that, but then, as you note, obviously the terms come up repeatedly in a book <laughs> with the title Heathen. And so it was just getting difficult to parse, you know, which uses of those terms were my uses of those terms and which were quotes. And so I decided pretty early on, actually, in the writing of this, that it was just too clunky to keep doing that. So I would just in include a note right up front. So, you know, early chapter graphs, that would be like note number one, footnote number one in the chapter graph would say, you know, for the sake of textual clarity, I'm not going to put these terms in quotes when I use them. They will obviously be in quotes when they come from sources. And it should not be taken to mean uncritical uses of those terms. Like clearly they are problematic and I'm not not intending to use them not as such. So that's a great question. Right. It reminds me in disability studies, for example, there are terms like idiot and uh, which is an old, old term and also a newer term like retarded, which are now seen as problematic. Idiots kind of lost that. People kind of have forgotten that it was connected to intellectual disabilities. But with retarded, that's, you know, that's a slur still. And so Mm -hmm. in disability studies, I've seen a similar disclaimer where people say, you know, we're going to be using this when we're quoting people and when we're talking about the historical context, because that's the word that was used, but we're not going to keep throwing that quotation. But I think it really does speak to the power of quotation marks as this marker of, I I understand and I'm I'm using this word deliberately. Another word is the word white. And you note Mm -hmm. that you're going to capitalize that in a lot of cases. Talk a little bit about that decision as well, because race is a central theme to this book. Yes, yes, yeah. So that was a decision that I really gave a lot of thought to and kind of went back and forth on. And, you know, the capitalization of white is obviously obviously a problematic thing because that has been co-opted. Yeah, it could seem like honorific or something. Exactly, exactly. And that is not at all how I am or why I am doing that. So in the note on terms, I reference um, an article by Nell Painter on uh, why white should be capitalized too. And the argument that she makes there and, and others have made it as well is that capitalizing white has the effect of showing whiteness as a racial category not capitalizing white makes it seem like an unmarked, you know, normative category against which every other group is raised. And it's it has a jarring effect. I think capitalizing white has a kind of jarring effect to to mark it as a racial group, 
right? And that's really part of the project of this book is to think about whiteness as a racial category and to mark it as such. And so that's the reason why I did that. Um, not again, not at all to give it any sort of like honorific designation, but to simply say, yes, whiteness is a racial category and it needs to be studied seriously as such. You had to do a lot of thinking about that. And, yeah. you know, scholars today really are very aware that they're writing from their own perspectives. They come from mm -hmm. a particular perspective, racial backgrounds, gender, sexual orientation, all all kinds of things. Let's begin with your background a little bit. And you, you do this in the book by introducing us to a little musical that I had never heard of. It's kind of this, uh, the thing that this thing that I think Christian communities would kind of put on this little play about missionizing the world. So tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about that play. Yeah, there's a long history to Christian communities putting on shows, plays, having children kind of, you know, dress up as so-called heathens. Hillary Kale's book on, uh, I think it's called Christian Globalism at Home gets into that history a bit. But yes, I so I grew up in a conservative Christian tradition and I was in this play when I was, I think I was probably seven, I don't know, sometime in my elementary school years. Um, I was in this play called The Mission Connection. And the play is about, quote unquote, all American kids. It actually uses the term all American kids who <laughs> get on board a train called the Jesus Express that goes throughout the world to evangelize people who need the gospel. So the, the play itself doesn't use the term heathen because by the 1990s, which is I think when I was in the play, again, that term had had basically fallen out of disuse. But one of the claims that my book makes is even though we no longer use the term, the ideas are still very much there. Right. So yeah, so the play follows a missionary named Miss Shanary. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, yuck, she yuck, has yuck. a solo. It's uh, it's very, she has a father named Dick Shanary. Her mother's name is Stace Shanary. <laughs> I really wanted to be Miss Shanary. Did not get that part. Um, I was instead cast as a Native American. And yeah, the uh, the stereotypes and the tropes in this musical are pretty appalling. Uh, so I actually ended up buying a copy of the musical as I was working on the, the book. It was still available. You know, going through it again was just... Yeah, <laughs> it was an experience. It strikes me that you were chosen. So was it predominantly a white Christian community that you were part of? Yes. So yes. were you, do you think you received that role because because of your race as well? Like there's like this awkward thing there of like, well, we can't make her missionary. I don't think anyone would say that explicitly, but did you kind of, do you get that sense? I mean, when I was a child, I, you know, I, I, I guess I just have a bad singing voice, <laughs> but <laughs> It's quite possible, right? It's quite possible. So, yeah. So in this musical, the other thing I think is interesting is that it's a train. Like it's going around mm -hmm. the world, but it's this very localized sort of a, a <laughs> right. American frontier idea of this train, right. which you might run into some problems when you're trying to go overseas on a train. <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. The Jesus Express. Yeah, it's very 19th century uh, in many ways, right? Like the train is kind of the symbol of American technological progress. There are images in this musical too that I, I thought about, I tried to include in the book, but ran into some permissions issues there with the publisher of the musical, you know, basically not wanting me to include images in a book. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. That is. So, so this kind of kicks off the book where you, you're positioning yourself as a scholar of religion, but also someone who came up through a conservative Christian mm -hmm. tradition and and someone who, you know, you're not a white person in America. You're coming at this from uh, from a different perspective there as well. Right. So you position us really well to understand this history of the word heathen and how, as you said, it's kind of fallen out of use, but it's mm -hmm. also very, the ideas behind it continue to persist. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the beginning of that word heathen. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I mean, maybe I can also just kind of comment that, um, you know, as you talk about my positionality, yeah. I write about myself in the introduction as I'm both the us and the them, right? So I was raised in this conservative Christian tradition to believe that, you know, I was blessed, I was saved, and to believe that I was so fortunate to have been born into a Christian family in the United States. Whereas if I had, you know, my family had not come from China to the United States, I might have been in quote unquote, heathen China, growing up as a heathen, ending up in eternal damnation. And so as a child, that was always kind of something that I struggled with and thought about. And in the book, I write that childhood me could be a primary source for historian me. And actually, 
you know, adult me, I could still be a primary source for myself. Mm. Like these are still questions that I am grappling with, that I'm thinking about. You know, this is this is important to me. And, you know, like I like I write in the book, these ideas are ongoing. They continue to inform the ways that Americans think about the world and think about themselves. And I'm part of that story. Right. I, I don't I don't want to set myself up as, you know, somebody who's above this story and has like moved beyond it in any way. I'm I'm part of it. Absolutely. The Christian part as well. Do you still yeah. practice Christianity in some sense as well? I do, yeah. Yeah. So and we'll toward the end of the interview. I, want, I really want to dig into the conclusion of the book. <laughs> As, I don't want to. I don't want any spoilers now. But stick around, people, because right. there's some very interesting stuff at the end of the conversation. But thank you for giving us that perspective of of where you're writing from. And let's talk about heathens. This is a word, as you mentioned, that has fallen out of, out of use. It's generally seen as an offensive word, but the ideas behind it persist. That's that's mm-hmm. your main argument, as you show throughout the book. So right. let's go back to the beginning of when heathen was born at all. What did this mean originally? Where did it even come from? Yeah, so that's, the term heathen is like an Anglo-Germanic translation of the Latin pagan, paganus, um, which referred to the people who dwelled in the countryside, essentially, and failed to adopt the new religion of Christianity. So they're the country dwellers who continue to worship the um, Greco-Roman deities. The term heathen is, again, a kind of rough translation of that. And the root of the term heathen is the heath. So it's understood to refer to those people who are wanderers in the heath, those Anglo-Germanic tribes who continue to worship, you know, Thor, Odin, etc. And so, yeah, so the origins of the term, it's really a European kind of concept to distinguish between, you know, first of all, those Romans who didn't accept Christianity and then those Europeans who didn't accept Christianity. And then as Europeans realize that there are other people in the world, the term heathen then has to kind of stretch to encompass people from different parts of the world. Okay, so heathen, it pertained not not only to, I would think it's like kind of about beliefs, right. but it's also like they don't have the right beliefs, right? So as you right. said, they worship the old gods, but it was also tied to location where they were, kind of mm-hmm. on the margins, to the language that yes. they had, to maybe yes. even to the nature of their intelligence itself. Maybe these mm-hmm. kind of country bumpkin kind of vibe, right? Or like hicks out in the sticks kind of a thing. These pagans that are just maybe undereducated or stupid. Right. So it talks about religious belief and and practice, but also location, intelligence, yep. and then race gets tied up into this. Talk about how that started to happen. Yeah. So as you know, one of the arguments is the continuity and the lasting significance of the term. But really, one of the other central arguments of the book is that this category of the heathen is really important to how we understand racialization and the the ways in which the racial other is formed. So as you note, right, heathenness is understood to be this quality that is um, about wrong belief. But wrong belief is never just, you know, an interior status. It manifests in many ways. And it's understood, so it's understood to manifest in the ways that so-called heathens take care of or fail to take care of the lands that they live on. Um, And then it's also understood to manifest on their bodies. Uh, So their failure to take care of their bodies. So heathenness is thought to be a kind of changeable characteristic, right? So the heathens are people who are backwards, who are needy, who don't know how to take care of themselves. And therefore, that sets up the Christian as the person who can come in and save them. And in terms of the ways in which heathenism connects to race, So some scholars have seen race as a quality that is understood to be innate, right? So it's the social construction of human hierarchies based on innate human difference something that's supposed to be, you know, right on the skin. It's supposed to be visible and phenotypical. Yeah, like color, head shape, body shape. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so scholars who adhere to this kind of understanding of race see heathenism as not a fully racial concept because heathenism is changeable. Like that's the very point of heathenism is it's supposed to be converted away. Um, But in the book, I draw on the definition or understanding of race that Sylvester Johnson poses in his book on African-American religions, which is that race is really about colonial governance. It's about the division of the world into colonizers and colonized Europeans and non-Europeans. It's kind of a binary process. And the heathen is central to this binary process, right? It's actually the very changeable quality of the heathen that makes it so important in this racializing process of 
you know, some people declaring themselves to be colonizers who can uplift or take over or you know, teach the so-called heathens how to live. And people also differed about whether this heathenism was something inborn, mm -hmm. like natural, or if it was something right. circumstantial. And this had an impact on how Christians would approach the heathens. So right. say, say a little bit more about that, about you know, this inborn yeah. thing versus circumstantial and how Christians would react as a result of that. Yeah. So and that could change over time, like in a very short amount of time, actually, that, you know, some some Christians would see certain people as as heathens who could be changed. And then as a result of warfare, for instance, then they might change their minds and say, no, actually, these are inborn heathens. And this is something that Rebecca Getz argues in her book on the baptism of, of early Virginia, I think is the title of it, How Christianity Created Race. So she argues that this idea of hereditary heathenism arises out of colonial warfare and you know the notion that certain people actually, and we tried to save them, but we couldn't save them. So therefore, they must be hereditary heathens, right? This must be an innate characteristic. And so that's something that I touch on in the book as well. But I also write in the book about how even if theoretically, you know, the idea is that the heathen can be saved and should be saved, in some cases, Christian missionaries, you know, Christian colonizers would describe certain quote-unquote heathen societies as so entrenched in their heathenism because of the many, many generations that they had been heathen that basically they were so historically heathen that they couldn't be easily saved. So in a sense, that's, you know, that's not quite the same as hereditary heathenism. It's not that they're understood to be like inherently heathen, but that the historical weight of heathenism on societies over time seemed so significant that it could not be changed overnight. You know, this is used as a kind of excuse, right? So for Chinese exclusion, that's where I primarily write about this. That's used as an excuse for saying, you know, the Chinese are historically heathen and they've been heathen for so many generations. We cannot allow them into the country. It seems like a convenient way to explain why Christian mission efforts maybe weren't as successful as yes, people hoped yes. they would be. What do you think about that? Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. Yes, that's, yeah, hereditary heathenism and historical heathenism are convenient ways to say we tried, but, you know, it was so entrenched we couldn't, we couldn't make the difference that we hoped to. So your book talks about how white Europeans and, and Euro-Americans really managed to combine a whole bunch of different peoples into this mm -hmm. singular category. Did they wrestle with that in seeing like, yes. okay, we're using the same term for people who are clearly very different from each other. And what did that wrestle look like? Yeah, so heathenism functions as this kind of umbrella or blanket category that clumps people of the world together, very different kinds of people of the world together. Um, and it not only clumps people geographically, but it also clumps people across time. So it's not just like people in different parts of the world, but it also stretches back to like the Greco-Roman world. And that really creates some, you say, wrestling with like, how, you know, how, how do we fit such different people under this broad term? So there's, you know, debates over the classics, debates over whether the classics should be taught in schools, for instance. That's how you see some of this wrestling playing out. So heathenism doesn't neatly overlap onto civilizational ladders, so-called civilizational ladders. Um, so people who were so-called heathens, you know, were understood to be on like all spectrums of the so-called, you know, so-called civilizational ladders. And so there's some wrestling there as well. Do you mean like whether they have like certain kind of buildings and advanced technology or whether right. they live right. kind of like in literacy, a more rural yeah. situation? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So Emily Conroy Kretz writes about this in her book on Christian imperialism. She talks about hierarchies of heathenism and how missionaries, you know, basically typologized the so-called heathen world with some heathens, heathen societies that were viewed to be like at the top of civilizational ladders and others viewed to be at the bottom. And they tried to direct their energies at first to the middle of these ladders because they thought that that would be where their work would be most, would bear the most fruit. I guess, right? Because they didn't want people who were so entrenched in their ways that they would just basically say, no, we don't need you. And they didn't want people who were supposedly at the bottom of these ladders who would require a lot of European intervention. So they tried to go for the middle. Um, that's what she argues there. So that's also where you can see this kind of wrestling. But what I, what I write in the book is that, you know, despite this wrestling, despite this problematic overlay of this category onto these ladders, the concept of heathenism, the umbrella concept, like the, the blanket quality of this category was actually very helpful for white American Christians in creating a kind of ceiling 
to civilizational ladders. That's, you know, if they felt threatened by particular quote unquote heathen civilizations, seeing them as heathen essentially swept them off civilizational ladders into this morass of shared heathenism. Yeah, let's talk more about landscapes because mm-hmm. one of your chapters, I think chapter three, talks about how the idea of the heathen has been closely connected to how landscapes are valued. And mm-hmm. I think this connects to civilization in general, right? So right. American Protestants would point to the Bible. They would point to scriptures like Isaiah 35, yes. where it says the desert and the solitary places will blossom as the rose. And they mm-hmm. would look and see maybe indigenous peoples who weren't doing the kind of European cultivation of the land that they valued Mm -hmm. or other people in other countries that weren't building the kind of buildings that they would build and having the kind of crops and living the kind of ways they were living. And so they could kind of judge based on the landscape itself as to, you know, where they fell on this heathen, well, you call it a heathen barometer, right? This sort of, you can judge how heathen people are. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about this landscape situation. Yeah. So, I mean, the landscape situation, again, is like a place where you can see them kind of wrestling with the broadness of this category because the book of Isaiah depicts heathen landscapes as barren wildernesses, deserts, overrun with storms and brambles. And so in some cases, missionaries going out into the world could very easily, uh, from their judgment of what a built landscape was supposed to look like, in some cases they would go and say, like, yes, this is a heathen wilderness, right? And so that justifies our interventions. In other cases, they would go out into the world and they would encounter built environments that, you know, more closely aligned with their expectations of what architecture, et cetera, would look like from a European perspective. And so, you know, that made them think, okay, so how does this fit into this heathen paradigm of a landscape that is overrun with brambles and thorns, et cetera, right? And so you get descriptions of, for instance, China and India um, that are that are really interesting because they start off with like, oh, you know, wow, we see these beautiful buildings. They're so colorful. They're like ancient. They've been here for yeah. thousands of years. And that's kind of threatening to their self-conception yeah. um, as superior white Christians. And so then what they end up doing is this move of basically reading these landscapes through the book of Isaiah saying, you know, behind these gilded surfaces, you might think these are gilded surfaces, but underneath what you really see is decay, you know, overgrown environments. These people don't actually know how to take care of their landscapes. This is why there's famine in these countries all the time. You know, their farming technologies are inferior and backwards. They don't have machines. And so the only reason why these places have been able to sustain, you know, sustain their people for so many generations is because they have so many people. The people turn into the machines that cultivate the land. But because they don't have the machines to cultivate the land, if there's any sort of natural disaster, you know, famine strikes and it's terrible, right? So this is the way that they they just read them all through the same kind of lens. And that's where I argue that this kind of blanket heathen category comes into use. Talk about some of the images, too. I know you couldn't get any, unfortunately, any pictures of the <laughs> Jesus Express or whatever, but you could, right. you could get some of these 19th century images yes. that missionary societies would send, like before and after pictures, you know, that we'd see on weight loss stuff on the Internet. They right. had this like before before and after right. heathen land situation going on. Right, right. Yeah. So some of the images, yeah, in the landscape chapter, images from Hawaii, I think are really interesting because Hawaii was really held up by American missionaries as a kind of paradigmatic success case, right? And so you see these images that were actually engraved by Hawaiian students that showed Hawaiian landscapes that had been transformed to look like, you know, what New England missionaries believed the ideal landscape would look like. So there's one image of Lahaina Luna, the school at Lahaina Luna in particular, that looks very similar to an image of Cornwall, Connecticut, right? So you see the same kind of houses, yeah, um, farmlands in the form. Right next to each other here and they look yeah, so exactly. similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's like um, showing the transformation of these lands. Let's see. Also in this chapter, there's an image here that I kind of went back and forth on whether to include this one in the chapter on landscapes or the chapter on bodies, hmm. but it's an image called Rude Farming from a children's periodical uh, from the 1860s. And this is an illustration of, you know, what I was just talking about with uh, stereotypes about India in particular and the lack of farming implements, according to you know, Euro-American understandings of what those look like. Here, the depiction is of people, right, who are doing the farming, like without the use of much in the way of machinery, again, by Euro-American standards. So the word rude here is supposed to signify, again, this kind of like backwardness, right, and the inability to make the land blossom as the rose without 
uh, intervention. Let's look at that Hawaii example a little bit more because yeah. we get into how indigenous Hawaiians themselves were reacting. These missionaries mm-hmm. were coming in and showing them different ways to create pastures or do farming or whatever. And you know, not everybody was happy with that. So what kind of yeah. reactions were were happening amongst, you know, amongst Hawaiians, for example, as people yeah, were coming Hawaiians. in and saying, hey, let's, let's make your landscape right. blossom as the rose. Right, right. Well, Hawaiians wrote back against that in the 19th century. You know, they were writing in newspapers, writing in exchanges back and forth with each other and writing their own histories and basically saying, look, we we have been cultivating the land. We were cultivating the land for generations. We cultivated it in a different way. Right. And uh, yeah, at the at the end of that chapter, I think I include a Hawaiian historian who writes about the coming of the Americans um, and says, as for us, we regret the loss of our former ways. Right. So they're very they're very clear about what's happening. They're documenting it in real time as it's happening. And actually, you know, I think something that's that's quite interesting, too, that I that I note briefly in that chapter is that missionaries also kind of lamented the rapid transformation of the Hawaiian landscape. Mm. So missionaries wanted Hawaii to look like Cornwall, Connecticut, right? So that picture that we just talked about, they wanted these kind of small scale. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They wanted these like small scale farms, right? But what happened, what was happening was the introduction of these large scale plantations. And so the missionaries themselves, you know, they lamented this, like, you know, what what is happening here? These boiling, like centrifugal, (laughs) huge machinery, like this is not what we were expecting. So you have this kind of, yeah, the close of the chapter with both Hawaiian missionaries and Hawaiian or Native Hawaiian historians lamenting what's happening there. All right. So we've talked a little bit about how landscapes Mm -hmm. were viewed and how Christians would come in and suggest they needed to be changed as part of responding to the heathen or saving the heathen. And we've talked a little bit about bodies, but chapter four gets more specific about that. So 19th century Mm -hmm. Americans had particular ideas about heathen bodies and race and religion seemed really entwined, as we've mentioned. Let's talk a little bit more about the heathen body and what Christians believed needed to happen with the heathen body. Yeah. So if landscapes were viewed through the lens of the book of Isaiah, heathen bodies were viewed through the first chapter of Romans, uh, the book of Romans, which discusses heathens as people who are filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, etc. They worship creeping and crawling things, and as a result, their bodies become the same. And so, in the chapter on heathen bodies, the, the point that I'm really trying to make is that, again, heathenness is not just this kind of interior state of wrong belief. It's a state that manifests or was understood to manifest on bodies in very significant ways. So, heathen bodies were thought to be susceptible to death, you know, whether it was babies who were subject to infanticide um, or whether it was sick people or old people who were neglected because supposedly heathens did not have any charity, any sense of charity towards their own. Heathen bodies were also supposed to be susceptible to disease because they failed to understand the nature of the true God. They failed to understand the great physician. And so instead they turned to uh, remedies that were you know, superstitions or otherwise, right? This is the kind of stereotype that arises. So yeah, so heathen bodies understood to be kind of sickly, susceptible to disease, susceptible to famine, unable to care for themselves. You mentioned infanticide. It seems like yeah. that was a kind of an obsession with Christians. This would show up in a lot of the literature they made yes. for other Christians when they were sort of justifying needing to go save the heathens. Right. What Was infanticide happening? Like, where was this idea even coming from? Talk about infanticide a little bit. Mm. Just killing babies, basically. Right. So the discussion of infanticide basically argued that it happened kind of along a spectrum, that on one end of the spectrum, there were heathen mothers who were so basically lazy, profligate, uncaring that they didn't want to put any energy into caring for their babies. And so they would essentially just kill them. Uh, or if they were sick, they wouldn't take care of them so that they could go on living in their you know lazy, profligate ways. That's one end of the spectrum. On the Unlike other your end of the spectrum, industrious Christian mothers who would never yes. do something. So like exactly. That, yeah. So what the trope of infanticide does is it sets up the Christian mother by contrast to the heathen mother, the Christian woman in contrast to the heathen woman. Right. So on the one hand, there's this stereotype of the lazy heathen woman. On the other hand, there's the trope of the suffering heathen woman, right? The heathen woman whose society so oppresses women that she does not want to take care of or raise girl babies. So it's particularly girls on this other side of the spectrum. She doesn't want girls to have to be born into the same hard lot that she is facing, right? So by contrast, the Christian woman is supposed to dedicate her energy, supposed to want to raise her children, and is supposed to be held up on a kind of pedestal 
pedestal in her society to do this task, right? So again, that's the contrast that's created through that trope of infanticide. Was it even accurate? Like, was exposing babies, like, was that a thing? I mean, I, when I hear that, I think of like you know, ancient Rome or something. You know? <laughs> right. So that's, I mean, so so what, the one thing that the book doesn't do is to consider, so it's about the, it's about the tropes and about the stereotypes that are generated about the so-called heathen world. And it's not so much about like, what are the actual figures that, what are the actual figures that are being encountered here? What's the actual like data that's giving rise to these tropes? It's, it's more about what is the use of these tropes like what are these tropes doing right it seemed convenient to me at the very least i think we could mm -hmm. say that that childhood poverty in america was an issue and right. that to zero in on this as a problem of the heathen was to overlook things that were happening right here Precisely. quote unquote at home and Precisely. just basically setting an, up an unfair contrast however it shook out but did christians expect conversion to change actual bodies like that heathen bodies yes. themselves would change yes yes they not only expected it they wrote about it right so so they, you know, they published these paradigmatic kind of hagiographic accounts of quote unquote heathen converts. And in one of them, the account of Catherine Brown in particular, this is, let me just find this. Yeah. Catherine Brown, who dies of tuberculosis in her early 20s, um, a Native American woman, she is described kind of the before and after, you know, we're talking about the before and after with landscape pictures, the before and after that's used to discuss so-called heathens who convert to Christianity. They describe a kind of change in bodies as well, right? And that's not only with their dress, you know, ornamentation, that's, that's discussed, but also, you know, there's a, there's a quote here from, gosh, from somebody who describes Brown's personal appearance, saying, from a quote-unquote wild, untutored girl, she had become graceful and polite. Some of my acquaintance were unwilling to believe she was an Indian. And so this kind of transformation is read onto bodies as well. We see a little bit of that in my own tradition, Latter-day Saint tradition, that would think that conversion would even lighten skin or mm -hmm. that you'd be able to see on someone's face that they had converted. That the mm -hmm. facial features might right. even change. Right. And so, right. so I was struck to see that happening in broader Christianity as well, kind of kind of in a little bit different of a register, but the same idea that conversion, what, that description you say she went from from this wild to this, I mean, that was a bodily description, right? They're mm -hmm. talking about hair, yes. they're talking about how she walked and how her body looked. And yes. there's a lot packed into those terms. Exactly. That's Catherine Jin Lum. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford University. And today we're talking about her book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. Okay, so far we've covered part one of the book and part two you introduce us to a fascinating person. So you've talked about these accounts that Christians gave of converts. They would mm -hmm. have this heathen convert and they would kind of tell their story and say how they changed. In part two, we meet, I don't know if I can pronounce this correctly, but Uchimura Kanso. Is, mm -hmm. is that good? Um, yeah. This is a Japanese person who converted to Christianity and published a book in the late 1800s. Let's spend a little bit of time with him. Yeah. It's not your typical conversion narrative. Right, right. Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters in this book. So he writes this book called The Diary of a Japanese Convert. And in the diary, so he describes the diary as kind of the log of a biologist, like what a biologist might write about the process of conversion. And throughout the diary, he pushes back against the idea that conversion is this kind of immediate day-to-night transformation. And he writes of himself as a body in the process of, of converting. Right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a process, and mm -hmm. it's a process that he is fully aware of and a process that he undertakes with the full awareness, in addition, of white American racism and Christian hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Right. So he is not he is not becoming a Christian because he's being forced to, although he does describe a kind of um, situation like that when he is a youth. But yeah, it's it's just such a rich and complex uh, source. How would Christians perceive him at the time? Would they see him as the, mm -hmm. oh, you're joining the, obviously they would believe he's joining the true religion. And right. so, but how would they perceive him? Like, was this kind of a victory? Like a heathen is joining the correct religion now. Yeah. Yeah. So he, his initial conversion process happens in Japan when he goes to Sapporo Agricultural College, which is then under the influence of a, an American missionary educator who basically seeks to, you know, convert the whole, the entire school. So a revival kind of such settings sweeps the school. Uchimura is the one student who holds out. And then finally he gives in. So again, there is this kind of you know sense of pressure, peer pressure, as he initially converts. And then he comes to America and he's basically paraded, you know, in front of gatherings as an example of a heathen convert, of a body that has changed. And he he pushes back against this in really descriptive terms, right? He describes these gatherings as circuses. 
circuses, right? Circuses where heathens who've converted to Christianity are like the, he calls it regenerate rhinoceroses mm. who are paraded before these audiences, you know, made to speak of their conversions. And he does not like this because he sees it again as a process that he's still undergoing. And why should you look at my body, you know, as right. this outcome of your process? He picked up on that racism. How, how else did he perceive white Christians? I mean, this is the religion that he joined. And at this point, mm-hmm. and his location was predominantly white. How did he wrestle with that? Yeah. So he, he was very clear eyed. You know, in understanding the racism that he encountered in the U.S. When he first comes to the U.S., you know, he expects it to be this land of, you know, enlightened Christianity. And he begins to see Japan as a land of heathenism that's shrouded in ignorance. Um, and then coming to the U.S., he begins to see things in, you know, shades of gray, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. He writes this. He sees, you know, American, white American racism towards African Americans. He, he writes about that. He writes about white American racism against Chinese immigrants. And he writes about that. And he's you know, how this this hypocrisy is just so clear, right? That to still choose to convert to Christianity or to be in the process of conversion for him is, again, like this, a wrestling that happens over the course of this diary. And that's why it cannot be this kind of night-to-day, overnight experience. I was impressed as well that he came to apply the heathen label himself kind of mm-hmm. in a new way. He, he began mm-hmm. applying the heathen label to white American Christians. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so I used him to introduce a chapter called Barometer um, with this notion of the heathen barometer, which you brought up earlier. But basically, you know, the idea of the heathen barometer is that there are these certain characteristics that it's like a checkbox, a list of things that if you detect this, if you detect that, if you detect, you know, all of these things, then beep, 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 you've discovered heathenism. In the, you know. But yeah. the thing with the heathen, the heathen barometer, threshold has been crossed. Right, exactly. But the thing with the heathen barometer is that it can be flipped. It can be flipped back on white Christian Americans themselves as a very kind of effective rhetorical strategy to say, you know, actually what we're detecting here is hypocrisy, right? And so uh, Uchimura Konzo does this. We also see this in African-American critiques Mm -hmm. of slavery and racism. And I wanted to spend a little time there if you want to give some examples of African-American critiques using the heathen label similarly to how Uchimura Konzo did. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, one example is David Walker's appeal from uh, from 1829, the appeal in four articles. Walker does what Uchimura does with the term heathen, with with flipping it back on white Christian America. And he writes about, so I should just, maybe I can just read a quote from, from the appeal. He writes that, quote, the white Christians of America who hold us in slavery, or more properly speaking, pretenders to Christianity, treat us more cruel and barbarous than any heathen nation did any people whom it had subjected or reduced to the same condition. So he's comparing white Christian America to the, you know, quote unquote, heathen uh, nations in biblical times that engaged in practices of enslavement and saying that Americans are more heathen than those, <laughs> than the heathens in the days of the Bible, right? And to say the words like the pretenders to Christianity really, I think, makes explicit here, you're not Christians, right? You are more heathen than the heathens that you read about in the Bible. They could use Christianity to critique the way that Christianity was being practiced. And were there receptive audiences for that? What were the kind of reactions that they would get with these, frankly, really bold pronouncements about heathenism, turning that back on white American Christians? Yeah, well, I mean, David Walker's appeal was met with fear, with great fear, right? It led to kind of a repression, uh, a crackdown against literacy. Yeah, he ends up, you know, smuggling copies of it, sewing it into the, the clothing that he... So he is the lining of clothing that he's buying and reselling to sailors. So this, you know, this kind of rhetoric is really met with fear. I think of a recognition that it is powerful, a recognition that it challenges, you know, one of the justifications of enslavement that white Christian enslavers were giving, which was that slavery was supposed to be this kind of institution that helped to Christianize enslaved people. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so for Walker to expose that this is actually a hypocritical, you know, unchristian, heathen kind of claim is a very powerful argument to make. And so, yeah, so there's a crackdown, you know, there's a lot of fear about the appeal being spread and read. Walker manages to um, find ways to get it to enslaved people. 
And he sews it into the lining of um, the clothes, the used clothes that he's selling to sailors, encourages you know people to read it out loud to enslaved people. And and yeah, so it is it is met with fear. Absolutely. Also in, in chapter six, Catherine, you talk about how Chinese people came to be seen as the quintessential heathens in for white mm-hmm. American Christians in particular. And I was really drawn to internal debates that actually happened between Chinese people in the book. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. Wan Chin Fu, who claimed mm-hmm. the term heathen kind of as a point of pride. And then Yan Fu Li, who was distancing himself from heathenism. Yeah. Talk about those two figures and 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 what they say about the history of the word heathen. Yeah, also a couple of my favorite figures uh, from the book. I'm actually hoping to write my next book on them to do oh, a, wow. a deeper Great. dive into them. Well, I could see there was a lot there. There was a, there was a lot there. Yeah. Part, yeah. yeah, yeah. So really interesting. And kind of similarly to um, Uchimura, they both initially convert to Christianity. And then Wong, like Uchimura comes to the United States. I mean, they both, you know, come and see the hypocrisy, the racism here. But Wong ends up unconverting and he ends up traveling the U.S. as a lecturer and of a self-styled Confucian missionary, um, very interestingly, claims the title of heathen for himself. He writes a piece in 1887 called Why Why Am I a Heathen? that basically inverts the ways in which the characteristics of heathenism had come to seem you know, negative, problematic, and says, actually, heathenism is the source of China's strength and longevity for all of these many years. And Americans would do well to learn something from heathens. You know, Americans who are endlessly striving, we're building all of these machines. Um, what are they doing that for? You know, building these machines, putting people out of work. Americans have no charity. You know, they don't care about people who are impoverished. They don't care about people who need help. They're the ones who are uncharitable, not the so-called heathens. And so you need to learn from us. Lee, by contrast, writes a piece a month after Wong's called Why I Am Not a Heathen. And that piece is interesting because he does acknowledge white Christian racism and hypocrisy. But what he does is to try to separate that that from what he sees as a pure Christianity. Yeah, so Lee discriminated between what he called true Christians and hypocritical ones. So he says, Confucius says it is impossible to carve on rotten timber Um, Christianity is not responsible for the acts of morally rotten men. And yet where there is any soundness at all, it has demonstrated its power to heal and save. Right. So he's again, like kind of differentiating between Christianity that's been practiced in a way by racist white Americans, such as Dennis Kearney, who's somebody that um, Wong talks about as well. Dennis Kearney, a labor leader from the late 19th century, who's, you know, one of the most prominent anti-Chinese demagogues. You know, Wong says, I don't want to go to a heaven where I see Dennis Kearney. (laughs) That would be appalling. (laughs) And Lee says, you know, the transformative power of Christianity is such that, you know, even Kearney could repent and become changed into somebody lamb-like who could come into heaven and say the Chinese must stay. Heaven is incomplete without them. So they're, you know, describing Christianity in different ways, but both of them coming from the same perspective and background of understanding, again, with clear eyes, you know, what this country is about. Right. And they're both appealing to Chinese sources. They're both appealing to their heritage. It's a really important reminder, I think, of the diversity that exists within communities that often get lumped together. Yes. There's a lot of diversity within Chinese communities, and we see these really powerful and and excellent writers, these great figures, Wan Chin Fu and uh, Li who were really challenging each other. And mm-hmm. this is it. So I look forward to seeing more work about them. That, that part was really interesting to me. That's Catherine Jin Lum. She's associate professor of religious studies at Stanford University. And we're talking about the book Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. Well, we don't hear the word heathen as often anymore, as we've mentioned. And so the word started to decline. One of the ways that it started to lose power was it started to become a way to kind of give backhanded praise. There was this romanticization that mm-hmm. happened amongst right. white people in particular. Talk a little bit about that. It, it almost became a term of nostalgia before before mm-hmm. it became a term of to be embarrassed about using. Yeah, yeah. So I write about that in a chapter about preservationism and this kind of turn towards, like you say, this kind of romanticization of heathenism as part of humanity's past, right? So this turn happens even in like a single individual. There's this uh, figure in the book, Nathaniel Bright Emerson, who's the child of missionaries in Hawaii. He is an ardent annexationist. He writes these really negative things about Hawaiian heathenism as justification for annexation of Hawaii. But after annexation, he turns into one of these romantic preservationists who writes about the Hawaiian past as, you know, part of humanity's uh, legacy that we need, that he, as this kind of white 
you know, American savior essentially needs to preserve so that we remember it. And so that, you know, the white, there's a, the con- a concern in the late 19th, early 20th century about over-civilization, right? the over-civilization of the white American. And the nostalgia of the so-called heathen past is basically held up as a way to kind of ward against this, these fears about over-civilization, right? So this is the era of like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders and you know, concerns that um, Americans are becoming too effete. You know, they're sitting in offices. They're not. Uh, they're not connected to the land anymore. And so, heathen, so-called heathens, are supposed to basically, you know, demonstrate what humans used to be able to do, right? Like how they used to understand the land and to teach white Americans you know, certain things that they might be able to preserve of these ways that that have essentially become defanged, right? So for Emerson in particular, like he's he kind of stands in as a paradigmatic figure here of someone who initially describes heathenism as very alive, very threatening. And then it becomes like, like yeah, this defanged, you know, for him, part of the past that we can learn from, that we can kind of selectively pick from to enhance you know, white American civilization. I see echoes of this today in when Mm -hmm. white people say like, that's my spirit animal, or they talk about, they borrow indigenous terms to talk about environmentalism or something. And so this romanticization seems to persist even to the present. Yes, absolutely. There seems to be an increase in respect and maybe, maybe religious pluralism instead of a blanket term like heathen. You see in literature, people more often will refer to Hindu and Sikhism. Mm-hmm. And so being more specific, was that a move of, was that like a gesture of neighborliness? Like what was behind the shift to those terms? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, I mean, part of the story of the category of heathen is a story of, kind of growing world religions awareness. Well, first it was kind of a binary categorization of the world's religions, right? Christians and all else, you know, heathens. Um, and then this kind of four-part categorization arises in, you know, 18th century compendia of the world's religions, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and heathens. Um, and then by the late 19th century, this category of the heathen kind of breaks into this proliferation of terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see like with the world's parliament of religions, you know, traditions are named, right? Traditions are understood to have their own names. But as I, as I write in the book, you know, that kind of narratives of like the you know increasing expansion of understanding of world religions it suggests that the category of heathen is, is just replaced by all of these other terms that it no longer matters um, and that it's become part of you know the, the past of like the academic study of religion but I, I don't think that that's actually so much the case right I think that still this idea that you know certain traditions emerge from this lineage of the heathen world continues to continues to inform this is where your book makes the most important intervention, I think, is it's more comfortable for me to believe that we that as, as a white person, uh, I've left all that silliness behind. I don't say heathen. I don't use those kind of offensive terms. It's just part of history. And the world has continued to become more enlightened and so on and so forth. When in reality, as you point out in the book, the ideas that were animating that label of heathen persist today. And mm-hmm. I'd like to hear from you where you see that. Like, where? what are some examples of, mm-hmm. we might not use that word heathen, but we're still we're still seeing quote unquote heathens and, and that is still happening. Right, right. Yeah, so there are there are a number of terms that have come in to come to stand for the term heathen today. Third world, developing world, unreached peoples, frontier peoples. Uh, these are all terms that people use all the time nowadays and don't necessarily think about, you know, where where they come from or like the ideas underlying them. What is the history behind that? You know, these are all terms that, as we talked about with the category of heathen before have this kind of umbrella or blanket-like quality that sweep people together. In the book, I one of the things that I had hoped to do but didn't because the uh, the press was concerned about how the printing quality would would come out, I'd wanted to include maps side by side of 19th century maps of the so-called heathen world that are color-coded that basically color the the so-called heathen world, you know, all the same like gray, for instance, or brown. Um, and I wanted to put that side by side with contemporary maps of the world that show the yeah. so-called third world, right? Or the developing world, unreached peoples and, and see, you know, these ways of viewing the world, like the idea that you could just, you know, sweep people across the world under the same heading, like that's that has long roots, right? 
So in the book, I, I talk about the continuation of these ideas, both in the realm of humanitarian organizations, some of which are religious and some of which are not. Um, I also talk about it with, I actually talk about Silicon Valley techno-salvationism briefly, partly because this is where I am. And so I'm very, you know, this is in my face all the time, right? The idea that yeah. there is a needy and suffering world out there that we can do something about, that we can save. You know, I've been to some of these Silicon Valley tech salvationist events and the language, the maps, the images, just so similar to what you see from the 19th century, you know, depicting needy and suffering people and putting the power to save them in the hands of Americans. Yeah, I've heard it called poverty porn. For, yeah, know, something that excites and gets people interested. How do you grapple with this, too? Because, you know, I think it's I think we both agree that digging some wells in a country that has water access problems would be generally right. would generally be a good thing. Right? right. But there's this hard tension that exists in humanitarian work where right. it can be colonial. It can be overbearing. It can be self-righteous versus it can be helpful and it can be meaningful. So how do you see that negotiation now, having done this work? Yeah, it is so I, hard. I don't expect you to right? have all it's, the answers for it either. I just I am wondering how do you, how do you wrestle with <laughs> with it. Yeah. I don't. Because I don't either. Yeah. Right. I, I am wrestling with it, right? It's in the conclusion, I go back again to this, my positionality is both the us and the them, right? And I and I write in the conclusion that like, I'm not morally superior in any way by virtue of being an academic, right? Academics critique from these comfortable office chairs. I like, I'm not the person digging the well. Like, who am I to critique that? But on the other hand, I, I hope that what this book does is that it opens a conversation that it maybe exposes a history that, again, like you mentioned earlier, many people think is just long gone, that it's in the past, and that it's that it encourages people to ask questions about why they're doing what they're doing, what they hope to come out of it, and you know who it's really for, I guess. But it's, yeah, again, it's, it is really hard. It's really hard questions. And whenever I talk about this book for audiences, particularly for audiences of students, that's always the question that they ask at the end. You know, I have, mm, I've had yeah. students who have been planning to go into you know, humanitarian work after they graduate, and they ask me, like, should I not do this? You know, this, I, I hadn't thought about this this way. And I, you know, I say, but I want you to ask those questions. I want you to think about it and yes, have those conversations with others. You also point out that history itself has been a colonial type of discipline, yes. that it's been itself has been used to define heathens and to help the advance of civilization and so on and so forth. And so you grapple with that as well. And mm -hmm. I was impressed in in the concluding remarks that you make that you're very straightforward about that and saying that you recognize problems within your own tradition as as you're levying a critique that, that there's critique that could come right back right. at you. Yeah. So I write about not only in this book, but actually in an article that I was writing as I was thinking about the book um, about history and how the discipline of history was you know, formulated against the supposedly historyless or stagnating heathen, right? So I, I'm not like by any means the first scholar to write about this. <laughs> There's many scholars who've made this kind of claim. But the very story that I'm narrating, it was really, it's about how white American Christians, white European Christians set themselves against the so-called heathen world as progressive history-making people whose interventions into the world would basically jumpstart the world into the process of history, right? Of of changing over time because heathen societies were depicted as stagnant, as unable to progress. And so, so yeah, so I write in the book this critique of the discipline of history, you know, the, the emphasis on change, on change over time. Like part of the book's point is that things don't just change. There's a lot of continuity that we see. And, and I try to show that throughout the book. Catherine, before we go, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about the relationship between, you know, your religious faith and the scholarship that you've been producing. Like I mentioned earlier, I was, I've been grappling with these questions to some extent or other since I was a kid. You know, the, the way that I understood them has changed over time. But for me, actually going into the study of religious history has been a way to think through these questions, to think about how humans and history have dealt with these questions, think about the kinds of answers that they've given. The tradition that I was raised in does not ordain women. Women are not allowed to become pastors and ministers. And I think if I had maybe been raised in a different tradition, I might have gone down that route. But instead, I, I, I went into academia. And so the entire book is a, is a kind of continued grappling. Like this is just, it's, I don't know, this is my my life calling, I guess, to 
you know, to think about these questions and to think about about how people have dealt with them. And, you know, the the, the various characters that we discussed today, I, I see myself in people like, you know, Wang Chinsu, Yan Sali, Uchimura Kanzo, you know, the, the kinds of issues that they dealt with, that they grappled with. I find I find community with them and, you know, thinking about the the ways that they talked back. That's Catherine Jin Lum, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford University. And today we talked about her book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. She's also author of a book called Damned Nation, which is a history of hell, the idea of hell in America from the revolution to reconstruction. Really fascinating book as well. So we're going to go take a quick break, Catherine, and then come back and get a best book recommendation from you, if that's yeah, all right. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Caroline Klein. I've spent the last seven years listening to Latter-day Saint women from around the world discuss their hopes and fears, their sorrows and joys, and the ways their faith informs their everyday lives. I want to share their stories and voices with you on my new podcast, This Global Latter-day Life. Join me to hear about the perspectives and life stories of Latter-day Saints from places like Botswana, Mexico, the Caribbean, and other countries around the world. Each of the women you'll meet contributed their stories to Claremont Graduate University's Mormon Oral History Collections. We'll also be joined by scholars and other community members who offer insights and explore questions that arise along the way. Half storytelling, half conversation, this global Latter-day life amplifies the voices of global church members and invites all of us to take more seriously the perspectives of Latter-day Saints navigating diverse cultures. Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right, it's Blair Hodges, and I'm just, you know, shuffling the logs around on the fire a little bit, keep the flames going a little bit longer, and checking out some reviews that came in since I last recorded. There's one here from Masha R. This is Masha Rumor, so she appeared on the show earlier, and she's also a listener as well. She says, this podcast takes some of the most pressing issues of our society and makes them inspiring and personal, affirming our shared humanity. Plus, there's a lot of humor. Thanks for writing that review, Masha. And uh, for people that haven't listened to that episode yet, check it out, Masha Rumor. The episode is called Heritage. We have another review here. This is a five-star review in Apple Podcasts from uh, <laughs> Elikasis. Uh, Elikasis, I think. It says that they're pleased to have a podcast like this that they can recommend to anyone, regardless of where they are or what their background is when it comes to religion. Thanks for that review. That's that's what we're aiming for here. Got a review from Steph Martz, who says they're grateful for this podcast. I also got a comment on the website from Stuart Peterson. He says that the, the Dante Stewart episode gripped him. He says, I held on and had a remarkable experience. Played it three times, challenged and intrigued. I gained an awareness of things I hadn't considered, and I find life richer by thinking differently superb gift to have your transcript yeah we put transcripts of every episode on the website firesidepod.org i love seeing these reviews come in time's running out though we're you know we're on the back half of the season here so now's the time to leave a review it it really makes a difference and i love getting feedback and hearing from listeners about what they're enjoying so thanks to everybody who's taken time to write a review in apple podcasts or leave a comment on social media or on the website firesidepod.org i also want to take a second to plug a new podcast that just became part of the dialogue podcast network it's called latter day struggles and it's hosted by valerie and nathan hammaker a really cool couple and valerie is a licensed therapist and just a really smart and compassionate person i had the chance to meet her in person and talk with her a bit about her show and have listened to some of her episodes and this is a really interesting podcast because it's about faith transitions faith expansion it's not trying to get people to stay latter-day saint or to leave the latter-day saint faith it's just exploring questions that a lot of latter-day saints kind of struggle to explore and talk about from the perspective of a therapist so if that sounds interesting then check out latter-day struggles the faith expansion podcast all right let's get back to it with katherine jin lum it's Fireside with Blair Hodges. Catherine Jin Lum is here, and we talked about her book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History, a great book. And Catherine, now it's time for you to recommend any book. It's the best book segment. So what did you bring for us? Yeah, so hard to narrow it down to one. It really is. It's almost an impossible question, I know. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna bring up a book that I read recently, even though there's so many books I could, could talk about, but 
Um, I want to bring up David Chang's The World and All the Things Upon It, Native Hawaiian Geographies of Exploration. Such a good book. It's a really compelling read. And what it does is that it reorients a history that so many have told from the perspective of the United States, such that you know, Hawaii is on the periphery and Hawaiians are people who are, you know, quote unquote, to be encountered. But instead, Chang, again, like reorients this and offers an incredible study that centers Hawaii and looks at the world from the perspective of Native Hawaiians who had their own geographic imagination, took their own voyages of exploration. So to give just one example from the book, Chang's discussion of Henry Abokia uh, is just revelatory. So he's a Hawaiian man who came to the United States in the early 19th century uh, out of geographic curiosity and interest. But most histories starting in the 19th century itself actually have discussed him as a, a youth, kind of a, a lost man-child, as Chang puts it, who converts to Christianity and who ends up becoming the subject of you know, some of these hagiographies that I talked about before spurs the mission to Hawaii. Chang completely changes how we understand him. He's not a boy. He's an agentive adult who trained for the Hawaiian priesthood, um, who was interested in learning about Christianity as part of his broader religious explorations. Just a, It's just a transformative read. And I mean, it's, it's a real academic page turner. So I, I highly recommend mm, it. That looks really good. I'll have a link to that at firesidepod.org and also links to your book and other books that we've talked about in the series. And if people use those links, then I get like 50 cents from Jeff Bezos because it's like it, it's <laughs> Amazon links and I get like 50 cents or something. So, but I mean, I think people should probably patronize their local bookseller. I, sh I should say do that first. But if you're going to buy it on Amazon, use my link and I'll get like, you know, 28 cents or whatever from that sale. So <laughs> that's, that's how I'm getting rich off Fireside. All right, Catherine, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Again, uh, your book is Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for really wonderful questions. Really appreciate it. Fireside with Blair Hodges is sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation, supporters of the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University in California. It's also supported by the Dialogue Foundation, a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. All right, another episode's in the books. The fire has dimmed, but the discussion continues. Join me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at PodFireside, and I'm on Facebook as well. You can leave a comment at firesidepod.org. You can also email me questions, comments, or suggestions directly. The address is Blair at firesidepod.org. And please don't forget to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Fireside is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Blair Hodges, in Salt Lake City. Special thanks to my production assistants, Kate Davis and Camille Messick. And also thanks to Christy Franson, Matthew Bowman, and Kristen Ulrich Hodges. The opening theme song is called Great Light by Deep Sea Diver. You can check out that excellent band at thisisdeepseadiver.com. Fireside with Blair Hodges is the place to fan the flames of your curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. See you next time.